I'm a pastoral candidate here at King of Grace Church. It's my pleasure and my privilege to be able to preach this morning. We're continuing through our summer series, going through the Psalms. And so this morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 46. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there and, and keep that open um, through the message. I think that will serve you, um, looking at God's Word in Psalm 46. Otherwise, it will also be projected, I think, for us as well. So if you have a Bible, turn to Psalm 46, and I'll read the whole of the psalm. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage at the kingdom's totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. We pray. Father, in this psalm we see the utmost confidence in you, in who you are. And so I pray this morning that as we turn our attention to these words, that you would grant to us that same faith, that same confidence and trust in you that we may know every peace and security that comes from knowing you as our rock, our refuge, and our strength. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I wonder if you've seen any of those videos that have been around for a few years now um, of famous sports stars who dress up in disguise of some sorts, or normally to... Um, make themselves look old and frail, and then they turn up to some game of their, their sport. Several well-known sporting figures have done this in different sports, um, some in soccer, some in basketball, I'm sure there's others. Oftentimes, although not always, it's uh, some sort of publicity stunt promoting some sort of merchandising or, or brand name. And typically what happens in this scenario, in these, in these videos, is that they will turn up at the game that's already in progress and they'll hang around at the court edge or the field and they're looking interested but kind of indifferent. But then at some opportune moment they're either invited or they offer to, to join in. And usually this invitation is, is met with bemusement or kind of puzzled glances by the other players wondering who this stranger is. But they, they allow them to join nevertheless if just to humor the person, 
And you can imagine what happens next. This stranger, this apparently old and out of shape um, stranger, quickly demonstrates unexpected and hidden mastery of the sport and runs rings around the other players. Of course, initially the other players are holding back because they don't want to embarrass the old guy. But once they caught on to the fact that it's possibly them who is going to be embarrassed, they give it everything they can and they still find they cannot match the skills of whoever this stranger is. This stranger outclasses them, dribbling the ball up and down the court or the field, making shots that appear to defy the laws of physics and not showing any signs of tiring despite everybody else dropping like flies. And then at the end of the little scenario, the star removes their disguise. All the other players have a good chuckle and, they, and uh, he thanks them for being good sports and encourages them to go buy his new brand or whatever it is. You can imagine, though, if these strangers turned up at the very beginning of the game when the teams are being selected. Based on what we see, those strangers would probably be picked last, wouldn't they? Or at least, if they're not picked last, then they're picked maybe out of, not, out of pity, not wanting to make them feel like they were the last one to be picked. They certainly wouldn't be picked first. But whichever team does pick them, they would, eventually, they would quickly find, and find to their delight, that they had an unexpected star on their side, someone they could absolutely rely on, and that this apparent aging enthusiast has got skills to put all the others to shame. Well, this morning, as we turn our attention to Psalm 46, we're going to ask the question that, given who God is, when should we turn to him in our need? When should we turn to him in our trouble? And I think oftentimes we approach God like those other players around that disguised sports star. Except God's not in disguise, we're just not looking at him very carefully. We know God's there, but for the most part, while the game of life seems to be going our own way, we can be content to leave him on the sidelines. I know at least that's my tendency. It's maybe only when the game starts to turn against us, when it looks like my strength or my skills are drying up, or the skills and strength of those around us is giving up, that we finally invite God into the game. And when we do, we're pleasantly surprised to find the old man has some skills. The point of Psalm 46 is to put God on display and to remind us and to encourage us to turn to him first in every trouble. And in this psalm, as we go through it, we're going to see God's power, we're going to see God's presence and God's purpose, we're going to see God's power, God's presence, and God's purpose, and that these three things come together to see that God protects his people. And that the main, the main point for this morning is that because God protects his people, we should turn to him first in every trouble. Because God protects his people, we should turn to him first in every trouble. So let's look at the psalm together. And that first point, that God protects his people by his power. Psalm 46 contrasts 
different types of power. In verses um, 2 and 3, we see God's power over nature. It says, therefore, though we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. The psalmist is painting this picture of chaos in nature around us. But God's people have no need to fear because God is their refuge and strength. In verse 6, we now see God's power up and against the power of the nations over human affairs. It says the nations rage and yet the kingdoms totter, the kingdoms fall. God's people against the power of nations. God's people have no need to fear because God is their refuge and strength. For God's people who first sang this psalm, who were intimately familiar with the psalms, the people of Israel, they knew God to be the God of creation, who displayed his power by bringing everything into being that they see around them. From nothing, just by the word of his power. They knew God to be the God of Noah, who displayed his power by bringing everything back to nothing through a deluge of water across the face of the earth. They knew God to be the God of Moses, who displayed his power in ten plagues before Pharaoh by sending a swarm of frogs, flies, gnats, and locusts to devastate the land, by bringing destruction from the sky in hail and fire, by turning the sea to blood and the sky to black, by sending a plague upon the livestock that distinguished between Egyptian and Israelite herds, by placing boils upon Egyptian flesh and by snuffing the life from the firstborn across the land. They knew God by his display of power, by leading his people through the wilderness, by a cloud by day and a fire by night, and by using that same cloud to protect his people from the pursuing nation of Egypt. He displayed his power by parting the Red Sea so his people could cross on dry land and by providing food and water for those desert people out of the heavens and from a rock. The prophet Isaiah puts it this way in Isaiah chapter 40. He says, Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he, God, who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the curtains like a cur- heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in? Who, prince, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness? Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created all these, who brings out their host by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. Brothers and sisters, that is the God who is being spoken of in this psalm. 
That is the God behind that first word of this psalm and is the subject of its contents. And that is why the psalmist can say, God, that God, is our refuge and strength, therefore we will not fear. That faith in such absolute power reminds me of an illustration from my childhood that maybe when I was seven or eight, I don't remember quite when, we had this odd way of, dis of uh, resolving disputes amongst my friends. Whether it was playground disputes at school or out on the street in my neighborhood, looking back as, as most things are when you look back on your childhood, they don't make any sense whatsoever. Um, but we didn't fight typically when we were that age. Instead, what we would do is we would threaten one another by telling on the other person to various authority figures in our lives. And we would escalate back and forth between the two people in conflict, escalating the level of authority that we had or that we, we thought of these figures in our lives, at least the authority perceived by seven or eight-year-olds. Of course, we would argue over silly and trivial things, who had the best bike, who could run the fastest. In our games, who was going to be Han and who was going to be Luke? Really depend on who was going to be Leah. But at school, so at school I had an older cousin who was a little bit older than me. So in these arguments, he would be the first one I would call upon to win an argument. I say, you know, if you don't do such and such, whatever it was, I'm going to tell my cousin. So my friend might reply if they had a sibling in, in the school as well who was older than my cousin. They'll say, well, if you don't do such and such, I'll tell my brother, you know, trumping my cousin. And then we'd continue this back and forth and pretty quickly we'd get to, well, I'll tell my dad. And the only thing that trumped, I'll tell my dad, was this. I'll tell my dad, and he's a policeman. <laughs> you see, for us at that age and our understanding, if your dad was a policeman, there was no higher power in the universe. And you could win any and every argument simply by calling on the authority of your dad, the policeman. I never really thought through the implications of why that was so intimidating, I guess. We assumed that there was an, a prison for eight-year-olds that they could just throw you in. <laughs> and for me, personally, that was absolutely terrible because one of my best friend's dad was a policeman. And so I never won any arguments with him whatsoever. Now, we laugh at the misguided, misplaced faith in the absolute power of a policeman, of, a, of an eight-year-old. But that similar level of matter-of-fact faith in God's true and real and absolute power, if that's where our faith is placed, then it is not misguided at all. It is perfectly placed. In reality, our faith is misplaced, Psalm 46 tells us, if it is placed in anyone or anything other than God. Because the whole realm of human existence, summed up in the psalm under those headings of nature and nations. Regardless of how stable or how permanent they may appear to us today, can they, they can melt and fall away just at the utterance of God's voice. Psalm 46 challenges us to consider where our faith is placed when trouble comes. Who or what do we treat as having absolute authority and power in our lives? Sometimes we don't realize where our trust is placed until it is threatened or removed. Sometimes it's just silly, small things. Other times it's more significant. During preparation for this sermon, I thought at one point my laptop died. 
and I quickly realized that I had some faith and some trust in my computer, judging by the panic that arose within me, that I wouldn't be able to find back, get my, back my notes. Other things are more subtle and maybe rely not thing, on things as such, but on man-made systems. Some of you will know that we've recently moved house. We actually sold a house, bought a house. Um, and they say that buying houses is one of life's big stresses, and I would agree with that. But it, what it did during that process, there were a few times that things looked like they weren't working quite to my plan, at least quite to my preference. And I found myself growing anxious at different times. And God used that to show me that I was trusting, not in him, not in his provision through this, but in some sort of man-made process, even though I didn't really understand the, the whole process. I just relied on realtors and what have you to take care of it all. But when things didn't seem to be going my, the way I wanted them to, I found growing levels of concern and anxiety. And God said very clearly, where are you trusting? I was trusting in something that is prone to chaos, prone to breaking, not in the God who cannot be moved. What about you? Any number of things compete, can compete for our trust. Things like our health, our homes, our other people, other man-made processes. Could be health insurance, home insurance. Could be trusting in a legal system. It's not that these things are necessarily bad. They are gifts of God. But we are not to trust in them and leave God as a third-string quarterback sitting on the bench. Rather, Psalm 46 encourages and points us that when we recognize that we've been trusting in something or someone other than God, other than his power, we should repent and remind ourselves, as the psalm reminds us, of the absurdity of relying on anything other than God's absolute power. There is none like him. I'll say that again. Brothers and sisters, there is none like our God. And we have a view, a viewpoint of God that the psalmist did not enjoy. We can see God's power in God the Son, Jesus Christ. Power that he displayed over nations as he, sorry, over nature as he multiplied a small lunch to feed thousands. As he reversed the effects of disease and even death in those around him. Power displayed over nations as he calmly walked through and away from an angry mob bent on his arrest. One of my favorite displays and appropriate in relation to Psalm 46 is found in Mark chapter 4. Jesus is in a boat with his disciples on the Sea of Galilee. And we read that a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was great calm. He utters his voice. The earth, or the wind, or the seas, melt. Our triune God has absolute power. And because he protects his people by his power, we should turn to him first in every trouble. Well, okay, you might say, God may be almighty, but 
Can we rely on him to be there when we need him? Psalm 46 replies and declares with a loud yes. And we will see that God protects his people with his presence. For the, God of, for the people of Israel, God's presence was hugely significant. It's what defined them as God's people. In Leviticus chapter 26, <coughs> excuse me, we read, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you will be my people. That was God's promise to his people. What good would it be to be called God's people if God was never around? Or if he was slow to show up when trouble came along. But look at what the psalm says in verses 4 and 5. It says this, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The psalmist declares that in the middle of raging seas and clamoring nations, it's possible to know peace in God because he offers protection with his presence. That all-powerful God we were just considering, he turns up to be with his people. Some of the word associations in the original Hebrew that reference this point or reinforce this point are lost a little bit in our English translations. But in verse 2, we see the instability of nature as it talks about the mountains being moved. And in verse 6, we see the instability of nations, where it says the kingdoms totter. That word totter, it's the same as moved. Kingdoms move, uh, mountains move, kingdoms move. Compare that to verse 5. The stability of where God is, he shall not be moved. And amongst unstable nature and unstable nations, where God is, is the only place of stability. And notice he turns up at just the right time. See how verse 5 ends. He, rise, he will be there when morning dawns. That would have been the most opportune time for an enemy to attack while the people were at their most vulnerable. But it is precisely at that moment when God can be counted on. Now, it's legitimate to think and ask, aren't we always talking about God's presence? Isn't God everywhere? So is this anything special? Most of us, generally speaking, understand something of God, even if we're not a Christian, we understand something of God, that he's everywhere. The theological term we use is omnipresent. So if, of course God's present when there's trouble, you know. How can he not be there? Because God's present everywhere at any time. But we must not miss the special promise and privilege of God's people as distinct from all people, held in this psalm and taught throughout the Bible, I heard one pastor put it simply this way. God is not only present everywhere. God's people enjoy a unique and special intimacy with God as his children that is real and personal. And it's the psalmist's confidence in these verses. And once again, unlike the psalmist, we enjoy a fuller picture. In fact, the complete viewpoint is, is on display through the teachings of Jesus. In John chapter 7, we read of Jesus teaching those around him. It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, 
Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And then just a short while later in John chapter 14, on the night before Jesus was going to be crucified and would be taken away from the disciples, he comforts them with the promise of God's presence with these words. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And on a few verses on, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have received the Holy Spirit who dwells with you and in you. God is present in your life, and you can claim the promise of verse 5 of Psalm 46, that God will help when morning dawns. Because God protects his people with his presence, we should turn to him first in every trouble. Okay, so God protects his people with his power and with his presence. We might easily think that that's all we need, right? God's there for us. He's the all-powerful one. If I have a problem, I can go to God and he has the power to fix it. So what else do I need? Well, it means we're missing the essence of verse 10. Verse 10 reads this. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. God protects his people for his purpose. God's ultimate purpose in Psalm 46 is that he is exalted over nature and over nations. His ultimate purpose is not to give me everything I want the way I want it, when I want it. Now, when God's exaltation and helping me in my troubles when the way I want them to, when they align, God is pleased to provide for me in that way. But I can submit to God's sovereign knowledge and his goodness and power and receive whatever help he gives me, knowing that that is the help that I need. It is that help which is good for me and brings most glory to God. I need the reminder of verse 7 and repeated in verse 11 that those verses give us that God is the Lord of hosts and I am not the Lord of the Lord of hosts. He doesn't submit to my purposes. I am to submit to his. It reminds me and makes me think of the encounter that we read in the Old Testament in um, the first few chapters of, in the book of Joshua. Joshua is leading God's people into the promised land and just before they come to the city of Jericho, which is standing in their way, Joshua has this interesting encounter. We read in chapter 5, When Joshua was in Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Are you on my side or are you on their side? And he said to them, and he said, No but I am the commander of the Lord. 
now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Like Joshua, we can think of God as, Whose side are you on? Are you on my side or are you on their side? Forgetting entirely that it's him who sets sides. And we should be on his side, submitted to his purpose. And that's where we come to a problem. It's a problem for me. It's a problem for you. It's a problem for every one of us because we have not been committed to the purpose of God. In fact, if we're honest, we're outright opposed to it at times. And we were born opposed to the purpose of God. And why should God tolerate a creature in his universe opposed to his purpose to exalt God's name? That's the one problem, the one thing the psalmist doesn't address in Psalm 46. What hope can I have of claiming to be one of God's people and claiming his protection when I have opposed him? More realistically, more pressingly, how do I avoid judgment and condemnation by this almighty God with whom I have arrogantly tried to compete? Once again, unlike the psalmist, we enjoy a complete view of God's revelation in history through the Bible. We know that Jesus didn't come simply to display God's power, although he did display God's power. Nor did he come simply to reassure of God's presence, although he did reassure of God's presence. Jesus came to fulfill God's purpose, to exalt the name of God. Jesus came to fulfill God's purpose, to glorify his name by redeeming a sinful people to himself. Not overlooking the judgment they deserved, but instead pouring it out on Jesus himself who deserved nothing of it. The gospel that we hold to is that God poured out the desolation that we deserved upon his Son, who above all people deserved to dwell securely and at peace in the presence of his Father. He did this so that those who trust in him may find God's presence not to be a terrible thing, but to be a sweet thing, a sweet thing of peace and protection. Just as I need the reminder in verse 7 and 11 that God is the Lord of hosts, so too I need the reminder that God is the God of Jacob, the God of a greatly imperfect man, man full of selfish ambition and deceit and trickery, and the God of the people of Jacob, a greatly imperfect people, who repeatedly walked away from their God and his ways. The God of Jacob, who despite all of the failings of his people, kept his promises for his name's sake and keeps his promises to us to forgive those who repent and to turn from sin and to redeem them for good and to be their God. And we know what God's exaltation in verse 10 looks like in all its fullness. In Philippians chapter 2, we read how God the Father has now treated Jesus, God's Son, because of his obedience to the cross. Philippians chapter 2, we read, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Jesus will be exalted among the nations. He will be exalted in the earth. Psalm 46 tells us that being on God's side doesn't mean that we won't have any troubles. Rather, the psalm tells us that despite troubles in our lives that God sovereignly allows, we can turn to him and know that he will protect us for the purpose for which he saved us, to bring glory to Jesus by, being the, bring, by working in us the image of his son and making us sons and daughters to enjoy God the Father forever. So this psalm, we see God's power, we see his presence and his purpose, and because by these God protects his people, we should turn to him first in every trouble. Let me offer, finally, just some suggestions of application that come from these verses. The first is this. It comes from verse 10. Let me read that again. It says, Be still and know that I am God. So that is the first application here, is to be still and reflect on who God is. This is not a kind of a let go and let God moment. Be still isn't the only instruction to God's people in the Bible. There's plenty others that call us to active activity and work in our faith for the, in the Lord. But rather here, in this moment, when facing trouble, the psalmist encourages us to be still. Stilling our souls to reflect and meditate upon God and who he is. He's given us his word which communicates God's power his presence and his purpose to our souls by the application of his spirit. So when's the best time to do this? Should we wait for when trouble comes? Well, I'm so grateful that God doesn't turn away his children when we come to him only in trouble. The Gospels are full of accounts of people with all sorts of troubles coming to Jesus only because they want him to deal with their troubles. And never once does he exclaim, you people! You only come to me to help you. I'm sick and tired of it. God will never turn away his children. And we certainly need to remember who God is in those moments of trouble. But the question is, how does it get inside our heads in the first place? It gets there by being planted in times of peace, not in trouble. God invites us to turn to him in trouble, yes, but don't just turn there in those moments of trouble. Make a habit of stilling your soul and turning to him before, during, and after trouble. I love the picture that we have this in the Old Testament from Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a Jew when some of the Israelites were still in exile and they were ruled by the king of Persia. And he served as an official in the king's court as cupbearer for the king. And in chapter 1 of the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah receives a report from his fellow Jews um, who are living out in Judah that they are in trouble and the city of Jerusalem is in ruin. And for the rest of chapter 1, we read how Nehemiah strong, is so strongly affected by this news that he weeps for his brothers and for the city of God's people and he prays and he fasts. It's really a model prayer of confession and humility before God and I encourage you to, to read that through this coming week perhaps in Nehemiah chapter 1. But he doesn't do this just once. He doesn't hear the news, prays, and then goes and does something. He doesn't pray just for a day. He doesn't pray just for a week. The book suggests that he actually prays for four months before he decides 
to do something about it and go to the king of Persia in asking for assistance. Although there's pressing work to be done in Jerusalem, he's intentionally still before God for four months before taking action. Then in chapter 2 of Nehemiah, he goes to the king and he allows the king to see him sad. And Nehemiah is not normally sad, so the king asks him why the long face. And before Nehemiah replies, we read in that conversation that he has with the king in chapter 2, verse 4, in mid-conversation with the king, Nehemiah records, he says, I prayed to the God of heaven. And then Nehemiah spoke to the king. I love that. I love how briefly he just interjects prayer into his conversation. I'm assuming it's not a long prayer. The king wasn't standing there like, hello, we were, we were talking. What happened? He just simply let out of God help me and then said what he needed to say to the king. But that God help me was a prayer built on four months of prayer and fasting, of reflection on the great and awesome God of heaven. So it's not just that we come to God with our God help me during trouble. It's not that that's wrong. It is welcomed and encouraged by this psalm. But when do we still our souls to reflect on God, to ask us for help? What is your practice of being still before God, of setting your soul on him? As I was thinking about this, and I thought through the commandments in the Old Testament that God gives his people, he gives them an explicit command in the fourth commandment to regularly to be still, to rest. In the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments are actually recorded twice, once in Exodus 20 and once in Deuteronomy 5. And it's very interesting, looking at the fourth commandment, to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy or set apart, to work for six days and to rest on the seventh. The two times that we read that commandment, the record of it gives two different reasons for being still on that seventh day. And in them I see a connection to Psalm 46. One of them is because of God's power over nature. And the other is because of God's power over nations. After giving the commandment in those two locations, we read these two explanations for it. In Exodus 20, we read, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. But then we read a different explanation in Deuteronomy chapter 5. After giving the commandment, it says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. However we understand and practice the fourth commandment in light of Jesus' fulfillment of the law, we must recognize that at least the principle of taking regular weekly rest is set before us in God's word to deliberately put down all of our activities switch off all of our distractions, and intentionally turn our souls to reflect on who God is, to reflect on God's power over nature, all creation, and to reflect on God's power over nations and authorities, which we ultimately see in Jesus, in him conquering sin, Satan, and death through the cross and resurrection. So brothers and sisters, I commend to you the practice of being still, of finding a regular, weekly at least, rhythm of being still and reflecting on God's power 
upon God's presence and upon God's, um, sorry, blanked, God's purpose. Thank you. Let me close with one last application, and it's a real simple one. Let us pray for the completion of God's presence with us. Revelation chapter 20, uh, 22 completes the book of the Bible with a promise of that final city in which we dwell in God's presence together, where there is a stream, a river. Revelation chapter 22 reads this, The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of nations. No longer were there anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no night of light of lamp or sun, for the Lord their God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, we have a great hope and encouragement set before us in Psalm 46, that in this life, in this world, we can draw near to God, we can find protection in Him, so that we should turn to Him first in every trouble. But let us pray and set our hope on that day when we will be free of trouble, and we will be in His presence and worship Him together forever. Let us pray. Father God, we praise You and thank You for your strength and your protection that you hold out to your children in our troubles. Lord, I thank you and praise you above all for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to most clearly display your power, most clearly promise us your presence and to completely fulfill your purpose of redeeming a sinful people for your name's sake and giving him the name that is above every name, that we will be we will bow our knee before him and he will be exalted. So Lord, I pray, fill us afresh with new faith today to rest secure and at peace in your protection. And Lord, we do pray, would your kingdom come. Let us see the return of our Savior and give glory to his name. Amen.